0: Welcome to the Context Matters Podcast. I am your host, Cindy Parker. I am an educator, explorer, writer, and speaker. I enjoy gathering around the table with interesting people who have different life experiences from me. And then we get to talk about God, Bible, theology, and other tangentially related subjects. Your voice is always welcomed around this table. You can reach out to me and let me know what you're thinking about through my website, narrativeofplace.com. A while back, I was exchanging emails with a scholar when I noticed that she had written on the book of Jude. I thought, huh, Jude, I don't think I remember what's in that small book slash letter, That's always a little embarrassing as a Bible scholar to realize that I don't actually know some content in the Bible. I started doing a pop quiz with my friends, spontaneously asking them, What's in Jude? Or, When is the last time you read Jude? Or, Have you ever heard a sermon on Jude? Then I started wondering about the church's biblical literacy if we simply don't talk about books in the Bible in churches. So I started down this path of inviting scholars to the podcast table to talk about books of the Bible that we tend to ignore. And it all started with today's guest. I am pleased to introduce you to Dr. Allie Robinson, who is a lecturer of New Testament studies at United Theological College, which is a part of Charles Sturt University in Sydney. She wrote her dissertation on Jude and has preached from the book and written about this little letter tucked in right before the book of Revelation. You may remember last week's conversation with Dr. Edwards as we talked about 2 Peter. Well, that letter and this 25-26 verse letter of Jude are often paired together. Dr. Robinson and I will talk about their connection a little bit later in the conversation. But first, let's find out how Dr. Robinson's context growing up influenced her understanding of God and the Bible and set her on a trajectory towards studying Jude. Lean in and enjoy the conversation.
1: Yeah, it's a great question. And I actually really enjoyed thinking about this question. I was lying in bed last night thinking about it. I grew up in a Christian home. And so my background is Italian. And my parents, before I was born, had left the Catholic Church and gone mm-hmm. into quite a charismatic Pentecostal church.
0: Whoa. That's a huge change. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah, huge, huge change. And so. I grew up in a really charismatic Pentecostal church and independent of all church structures and all that sort of thing. So, you know, I things like creeds, I didn't know what a creed was. You know, we <laughs> were doing our own thing. And so my parents loved Jesus. They loved Jesus, loved the Bible. My dad is really sweet. Like when we would grow up, I've got two sisters and he'd be like, come on, girls, we're gonna, you know, every evening sit around the Bible and read the Bible together and talk Mm -hmm. about God and like really, really faithful. But because of the context I grew up in, my understanding of the gospel wasn't great. (laughs) Like I didn't have a clear understanding of sort of what Jesus died for. And, you know, I just didn't have a very good theology, if you will, or sharp theology maybe is the better answer. But in saying that, my impression of God was grand. Like God mm. was big. God was powerful. There was no limits to what God could do. And I think that's actually one of the beautiful things that you see often in charismatic churches is this sort of huge appreciation mm. of the boundlessness of God, you know? Yeah. And so like one like little example is that I remember my mom telling me a story when I was about five and my favorite sunglasses broke and she was like, oh no, you know, your, your sunglasses broke. And then I put them in a drawer and I said, it's okay, mom, Jesus will make them better. <laughs> 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 Just that idea of like, you know, God can do anything. <laughs> right.
0: It's like amazing faith.
1: Like his little girl just like, can't God do anything? Like he can literally move mountains, you know? (laughs) So, and I do feel as though, even though I'm not in that context anymore, I do feel like I have maintained that view of God, that he is big and he is powerful and awe-inspiring. Yeah. And so, I think then when I went to Bible college and eventually I'm in the church that I'm in now, I feel as though now that I have more of an appreciation of, you know, the actual biblical text and things like, you know, creeds and what we believe, it's given me more grounding, but I haven't lost that big picture appreciation of who God is. And so, yeah, that's been helpful.
0: That is really beautiful because I think there is something about, I love the richness of the creeds, but Ooh. when I talk to people, sometimes I I get the impression that people who grow up with the creeds and the creeds are their framework, they lose the grandness or the respect of the sacredness of the god they they come to, and yet mm. when I interact with very charismatic people there's a uh, they lose contact with the historicity the really deep mm. rich rich historicity of the church, and the the work that's gone into developing the creeds. So that is Mm. such an interesting, the fact that you actually embody that transition (laughs) is. Yeah. Was that a hard journey for you? Kind of combining the charismatic part and the rich history part, or did that seem to flow seamlessly for you?
1: In some ways, it was probably harder for my parents because Hmm. they were looking at me thinking, Oh no, our like, you know, free spirited, charismatic daughter is like, like shrinking, you know, because there's that feeling sometimes, not always but a little bit of fear of like over-intellectualizing things. And, you know, but I think now, you know, so much time has passed and, you know, my passion for God's word and for teaching God's word, they see the fruit of it now. But I think at first they were a bit nervous about me going into a a more conservative setting. And, but I think for myself, I, I remember sitting in like, you know, a prayer book service for the first time and getting a, the like, what is it called? Like the common book of prayer, or whatever, and yeah. opening it and reading and being like, Wow, this is amazing! Like, are we all going to say this together? I do believe that you know, like, it was just such a love it. to me that this had been written down and we were all saying it together. And- <laughs> there was something so beautiful about it so for me it was just this ongoing journey of discovery and that journey hasn't stopped in some ways like I was listening to your podcast recently when you were interviewing people about going back to church post COVID and they were talking about the Eucharist and oh my goodness again I just felt like again my appreciation for the Eucharist and coming together as a body was just reignited, and so I just feel like I'm constantly learning and growing and evolving, and and then trying to impart that on to my students and my children and my poor husband, who's like, "Oh, here we go, a new idea." <laughs> anyway, I, I, yeah, it's been a, it's been a really exciting journey, actually. Yeah. yeah.
0: What yeah. actually took you just from like a normal growing up in the church kind of environment to? Mm. I think I want to do this for my life. Yeah. What like what kind of motivated you into that? Like why didn't you go into biology or physics or something? Biology,
1: that's so good. Uh, you have to be good at science, which I'm not. No. <laughs> um, well, as I like I said to you before, like I so my first degree was creative arts. So I was, yeah, doing drama and music and all those sorts of things, but it was at a Christian college. And so we just had to take one or two subjects about the Bible. And while I was at that college, like I I went into that context, not like a super committed Christian, but then like, as I went along, I sort of started to understand the Bible more. I met my now husband and started going to a church where I felt like, well, actually his dad was the minister and I felt like the gospel was preached so clearly and I started mm. to get involved in youth ministry and things like that. And as my understanding of the Bible and the gospel and ministry grew, I turned to him one day, so my husband's name's Johnny, and I turned to him one day and I said like, wow, I would just love to know more about the Bible. Like I just realized that I just didn't know that much about the Bible. Yeah. And he was like, why don't you study it? And I was like, where does one do that? <laughs> Like I'd never heard of a Bible college before. Yeah. And he was like, You can go to places and study the Bible. And I was like, okay. So I enrolled at a Bible college just doing a diploma because I, I'm dyslexic and I find reading really challenging. Yeah. And so I was like, okay, we'll just start with a diploma. And I just loved it. And I got to the end of that and I was like, let's do a bachelor. So I did that. And then I was like, I have so many questions. And then went on to do right. the honors. So a PhD was never, ever like the plan, but it just sort of happened as I just had more and more questions. Like I remember once I was driving from Canberra to Sydney with my husband. So that's about a three hour drive <laughs> and the whole way I'm just asking question, question. What about this? What about this? What about this? What about, why does the Bible have this? And he's like, Hey, you really need to do more. Stuff. <laughs> you just have like, too many questions. I kind of like this guy. Yeah. Yeah. So I just fell into it really. And just, I feel like I'm a bit of a sponge in that, you know, I just, I hear other people sharing their research and their papers. I'm like, whoa, that's so fascinating. And and I just, the more I learned, the more I realized I didn't know. and And it just sort of grew from there. Yeah. Yeah. So that's sort of how I ended up studying the Bible. And as I was doing that process, I realized like, the Bible went from like this 2D kind of difficult thing to understand to being really 3D, tangible, whoa, yes. real life people in real life places and, you yes. know, all that. And I thought, oh, I want to be part of that process too of helping people, whether it be lay people or people training for ministry. I want to be able to help people see that the Bible is alive and relevant and that this was an actual part of history. And there were real people in time and place. And, you know, it has significance for us today. And so that's when I was Uh, like, I want to teach the Bible.
0: Yeah. When did that happen for you? Because for me, I remember that time when I realized Mm. real people, real places, dynamic, like complex environments for all these things. But Mm. it wasn't until between my master's and PhD time, which is one of the prime motivators to my phd but at what point in time did that happen for you and did you realize that was the case i feel like going from
1: the transition from a diploma to a bachelor probably somewhere around there i felt like it started to become more 3d and then by the time i got to my when i was doing my doctorate i was doing it through the ancient history department so no longer in theology or biblical studies and that's when my kind of world opened up because I was like, oh, wow. Like uh, all of a sudden I was researching not just Jewish history, but also like Greco-Roman ideas and and history and and working around other historians and oh, just light bulbs everywhere. And I, yeah, so it was a process that probably started around my third year of study and then continued for the next three years where I was like, wow, this, this is such a, and and it's still happening today to be honest, because even like, as I said, I've said a few times, like I listen to things like your Israel Bible podcast and and I'm constantly learning new things about Mm -hmm. (sighs) the Bible, about the Jewish people, misconceptions about Judaism. Yeah. Just, I am con- I feel like I'm constantly learning new things and having to sort of reassess and tweak like what I once thought about, you know, a particular text or yeah, a particular concept or topic. Yeah.
0: I feel the same. I feel like it's a constant learning curve in terms of, there's so many things, like when we look at all these individual texts, they were so particular to a place and a time. And Ooh. we tend to learn history and like, in these 500 years, this thing happened. But when we're studying a letter in particular, it needs to be a little bit more drilled down. And, uh, and that can be a harder or a more time-consuming work. Were you always drawn to Second Temple history? No, I was doing my Bachelor and I had to write an essay on Jude
1: and I didn't do very well. (laughs) I I didn't do very well at all because I just didn't have a framework for Second Temple Judaism. I just didn't quite grasp what One Enoch was and what these other texts were and what the Jewish worldview was. I just (laughs) didn't have a category for it. And so as I started to read the Second Temple literature, I was like, wow, okay. So what we have in our New Testament only makes sense <laughs> when we understand that period as well as the Hebrew Bible. It's like all I was ever pointed to was the Old Testament, but we would missed this big chunk. And so for me, it was kind of like, wow, there is a puzzle piece here Oh my gosh, so many questions are answered when you understand that period Um, and that transition from, yeah, basically exile (laughs) through to, oh, absolutely. Now we've got a savior who's born. What? (laughs) And we've got Pharisees and we've got. Right. These people that
0: like pop out of nowhere and we're like, of course you belong on the scene. Yeah. Yeah. And now we're calling people Jews. When did that happen? (laughs) Right. Yeah. So just so many questions
1: and like, I loved that one of the sections in your book about the, uh, when Jesus comes into Jerusalem Mm. and how like the, with the palm leaves and the links there to the Maccabean period. And I was like, Oh, I love this. Like stuff like that, that, I, I mean, obviously, I know now as a teacher, but was never taught at Bible College. Yeah. Like, did ne- those links were not made. That I'm like, this is profound. <laughs> like, why was this never taught to anyone?
0: This might be a good time to talk about intertestamental history, which is really a segment of Second Temple history. It is full of drama and fabulous stories. The intertestamental landscape changes dramatically with Alexander the Great and the unstoppable spread of Hellenism. For the first time, a Western nation dominated the landscape of the nations in the Fertile Crescent. This completely changed conversations within Judaism. It changed the way Jerusalem and the temple functioned in politics. This was the period where we see a branching out of various forms of Judaism. And there's a lot of literature about this. There's so much to explore. I was curious how Dr. Robinson connected some of the Second Temple literature to Jude.
1: I think just, like, the more I read, and, you know, it was interesting as well because I even read a few commentaries on Jude where there was this hesitancy to kind of go, oh, he may have been quoting one Enoch or, oh, but he probably didn't think one Enoch was prophetic. So there's still, like, from some conservatives this, like, hesitancy to, like, Mm. admit that Jude would use what they call extra-biblical text. Right. And I thought, wow, there's so much Beer around using these other texts and I just needed to get to the bottom of it I was like surely Jude wasn't thinking that he's like breaking the rules of the canon by oh. using this text and then you're like
0: the canon didn't even exist was there a canon like,
1: so yeah <laughs> so, like there's every all these questions and I thought oh, this, there's so much here that needs to be unpacked. And particularly when you're working with lay people and like at the time I did a lot of work in youth ministry and, you know, young people are like, oh, what about the pseudepigraphal? What about the Apocrypha It's almost like we can't read it. Like we'll be tainted or something. I don't know. It's like they- they're Right, like someone already <laughs>
0: decided that they're not okay. And so yeah. somehow they're not sacred because someone decided yeah. they're not well, okay. Safe. And that's when I'm like, yeah. But all of these other canons think they are okay. So maybe there's yeah. a line and maybe we can learn from yeah. all of it. Yeah. Okay, so before we get to Enoch, because I think Enoch, yeah. there's four of them, right? Enochs? Yes, yes. I think yes. they are fascinating. So I, fascinating. I would love to ask you about them. But I would love to go first into, is it because... In Bible College you were given the essay on Jude is that the is that what drew you in is that the hook to make yeah. you do PhD studies on Jude because that seems like an
1: unusual choice <laughs> It was definitely the starting point it was the trigger in one of those so when I was doing my bachelor, that particular course was in Canberra. So me and my husband were doing these long drives, like Hmm. three hour drives to and from Canberra. And that's where we would just have these long conversations. And I just had so many questions. I, I just thought, yeah, why is there fear around this Enoch? Why is this book not known? If Jude is the brother of Jesus, like, shouldn't this guy be held in higher regard? You know, like, why do some texts get more, you know, screen time than others? You know, I just had so many questions. And then I was originally going to do something around authorship, but decided that I thought the links between Jude and One Enoch were just so interesting. And I just really wanted to understand what influenced Jude and kind of looking at intertextuality. And so that's where my honours started. And then when I got to the end of my honours, I thought, I still have so many questions. And so then it just sort of went into the PhD. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Okay. So could you explain who is Jude? How do we understand who Jude is? And why is he even writing something that we think should belong to our canon?
1: Yeah. So for a long time, the scholars thought that this text was quite late. And so... They thought it was someone who was writing under the name of Jude. But that has shifted, particularly in the last sort of 50 years of scholarship. And so now actually, I mean, I guess it's a lot of the work that we've been done, that's been done recently and like redaction criticism and stuff like that. And so um, in a similar way to how people originally thought that Matthew was the first gospel and Mark had borrowed it, we now understand it's the other way around, right? And so the same thing sort of happened with Jude and to Peter so now the understanding is actually Jude is probably original, the shorter letter that to Peter then expands and adapts for his mm. text. So I say all that to say that scholars then now think that this actually was, in fact, Jude, the brother of Jesus. So it starts with Jude, a servant or a slave of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. And so we think that to be James the other half brother of jesus and another reason that we think that is because like when the canon we talked a bit about the canon when the canon was put together they intentionally put these two half brothers texts around the catholic epistles right Mm. so it starts with james ends with jude and so they kind of like frame the collection and in some old codexes this collection was actually before Paul. It went like the Gospels, Acts, and then these letters because James and Jude were important within church history, right? Like James the Just, like James was the Bishop of Jerusalem and then James and Jude, we read in Eusebius, it's their grandchildren that then continue to be the leaders within the Jerusalem church. So these half-brothers of Jesus within church history had a really important place. It wasn't until Mm. later that, you know, Paul becomes more important, particularly within Protestant theology, and these letters become less and less studied. But yeah, so my understanding, and I I think majority of contemporary scholars would agree that Jude and James were the half-brothers of Jesus. Yeah, so pretty cool dude.
0: Yeah, I mean, and again, something never, ever, ever talked about, well, Not in my background. I can't talk for everyone. Maybe people talk about this, but (laughs) that was not within my general realm of conversation in the Christian church. Mm. People talked about that and not talked about in terms of having a purposeful framing of Mm. the epistles that Peter wrote, the epistles that John wrote, which I also think are books that we ignore in the Protestant church for whatever reason. A bajillion Bible studies are written on James, but not on Mm. Peter and John's epistles or Jude, of which I know of no Bible studies written on Jude.
1: Yeah, these figures are like the pillars, well, what Paul calls the pillars of the church. Like, so, yes, I think when you place these texts within their context, you realize, oh, okay, these guys had authority. Like, we should listen to these people. And like, oh my goodness, like, they've had conversations with Jesus himself. They're like, you know, they're his brothers. So like, when I read James, I can only hear Jesus. Like, I can just hear his teaching. I can hear the Sermon on the Mount. Like, you know, you just like, oh my goodness, like, Jesus is just everywhere in that, even though his name isn't used very often in James. But I feel similarly about Jude. I feel like Jesus is there. Jesus is, oh, like his Christology is beautiful. It's just beautiful. Mm. Yeah. And we don't notice it, I don't think, because we don't teach on it.
0: (laughs) So when we are looking at, or when you and scholars of Mm. Jude are looking at this letter, this epistle, Mm. who do we understand the letter, this document being written to? Is it? Yeah. Because when I do like a quick reading through Jude, it seems to me—I mean, he's making so many references to Israelite history. Yeah. That it makes me think, oh, he—he's speaking to a deeply embedded Jewish audience. But is there, if he's depending on what time period he's writing in, is he also writing to a, a Greco-Roman audience, or is it—is it truly? purely like a Jerusalem Jewish audience. Is there any way we can know?
1: Yeah, I don't know if we can like 100% know. So I think he's probably writing in the early 60s. And so I think whoever he's writing to has regard for James, which is why he mentions James. Mm. And so that's why a lot of scholars think maybe this is a church either in Jerusalem or associated with the Jerusalem church. You know, they have to, yeah, you wouldn't mention him for no reason, basically. But I think you're right. Like the, you know, the line that always strikes me is verse five. Now I desire to remind you, though you are fully informed (laughs) that the Lord wants, for all, save the people out of the land of Egypt. And then he goes on to give all these examples from Israel's history of different things that he wants to remind them, though they are fully informed of. It's like, you know, this, you know, this is like part of who you are and your identity as a people. So I think it would be hard to make an argument that he's writing to a Gentile (laughs) audience. I think these are Jewish converts, whether they are Jewish converts living in the diaspora I'm not sure I don't get any hints of that but definitely a Jewish definitely a Jewish audience yeah yeah I I just think the type of stories that he draws on just I mean it kind of paints this picture across Israel's history kind of as a whole he uses like examples from numbers and uses examples from Genesis and then obviously one Enoch and like we're, we're spreading across so much of um, yeah. Jewish literature here.
0: Yeah. Okay. So I love that you said obviously from one Enoch. So could you explain what is Enoch one, two, three, four <laughs> and, and how is Jude using that literature? Hmm. So, like, as you would know, Cindy, like, in the
1: Second Temple period, like, there was a lot of writing going on, you know, it's a, you know, we laughed at the beginning about how God was not silent in those years. And so, you know, you just look at, Qumran and the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, and you're like, whoa, like there's just so much literature there. And some of it is obviously a copying of parts of the Hebrew Bible, some of it is commentaries on the Hebrew Bible. Like
0: these are people trying to wrestle with the Hebrew Bible within their current context. And then which I appreciate. I'm like, see, we've been we've been wrestling with this stuff for thousands (laughs) of
1: years. (laughs) Yeah, a lot on Deuteronomy. And one Enoch is one of those texts that is we find so many copies of it in the Dead Sea Scrolls because it's a text that was being read and used and copied. And, you know, because it's, I think within like kind of a, you know, an apocalyptic worldview, it's, it's this cry to say like, things have not gone how we expected, (laughs) you know, but God will bring judgment, essentially, like the day of the Lord is coming. That's essentially like what one Enoch is saying. And so it's this, you know, right back at the beginning, we have like the fallen angels is big, big thing within one Enoch literature. And so you've kind of got this, like, you know, the cosmic realm has fallen apart, but there's this hope that the Lord will come with 10,000 angels, you know, to judge the ungodly. And that's what, Jude picks up on in his epistle to be like Hmm. okay there's this prophecy in one Enoch that the Lord is coming like just hold on like he is coming and things will be put right and I think so much of the literature that we find in the second temple period has these similar echoes because there's like there are there are people who are trying to make sense of their situation like Why have we been exiled? Why have we been, you know, spread throughout the empire? What is God doing? When is Yahweh returning? You know, and so, yeah, so that's what One Enoch is. But One Enoch is an interesting text in that it's probably got about five different authors. So it probably wasn't written by one straight author. And some of it we sort of think of as being much later. And so, the part that I think Jude is referring to, which is the Book of the Watchers, was definitely, definitely around in sort of like 200 BCE, something like that. And so the other parts of One Enoch, the question marks as to when they were written, and then same with Two, Three, and Four Enoch. Some of them were probably a bit later. But I think the Book of Watchers was a text that you can actually hear echoes of it through the entire New
0: Testament. I love all this background information, and there are so many people who are studying the New Testament without knowing these other texts, and it's a little bit like putting together a puzzle but missing pieces of the puzzle. And after this conversation, I feel like I might need to go back and read Enoch. This week, we covered the background of Jude. So next week, we need to dive into the content and into a surprise twist at the end. This week, I am pleased to thank David and Michelle Kaufman and Robert Lumberg for making this episode about Jude possible. They are part of my Patreon team who has stepped up and contribute to sustaining this project. I really cannot do any of this without my team. I am so thankful. I produced this episode. Luke Bronner of Milieu Media Group did the edits and the final mix, and Peter Lordson of Sycamore Sound created the music. It is good to be with you here at the podcast table, and I look forward to our conversation next week. Until then, be safe, take care of each other, and stay curious about the world around you.